Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Welcome to the Canon Cast, a weekly podcast from the Canon, an Espionation blog about the Columbus Blue Jackets. I am William Chase, joined by Elaine Shercliffe and special guest Patrick Williams, who covers the AHLB for publications including NHL.com and EP Rinkside. For those who don't know much about you, kind of, can you kind of uh, explain your path to becoming the AHL correspondent for NHL.com and EP Rinkside? It's a path uh, a lot of people will uh, find familiar because it's uh, fairly similar to what a player or a coach might do uh, in the sense I uh, started off, um, I was uh, doing ECHL, I did some OHL, um, and uh, through that I was able to get a foothold at the American League level, uh, and from there I, I put a few years in uh, at the AHL level, worked my way up there. Um, First did uh, some team stuff, then I did more lead-wide stuff. And uh, in 2011, uh, when the Winnipeg Jets uh, moved from Atlanta, I uh, took over the coverage of that club for NHL.com. Did that for about uh, a little more than five seasons and uh, gradually transitioned back to doing the American League for NHL.com on a league basis. And uh, from there, it's... uh, just been, uh, it's a much different transition going from a team to a league. Um, in some ways, it's almost a completely different job. Um, yeah, but it's been a lot of fun. And, and when I came back in 2015, I mean, the league had changed so much in five years. It was almost a new league. Uh, it was coast to coast. It was, in many ways, I think, much more polished and well-run. And, um, you know, uh, that evolution has continued uh, up here until 2020. Uh, it's been really interesting to see how the league has changed and to see the money that's flowed into the league in terms of uh, ownership and investments. Uh, when you look at uh, the team coming to Las Vegas, the team coming to Palm Springs, uh, it's a much different league from what, when I started, where it was a lot more of a mom and pop operation and quite frankly, uh, often uh, quite shaky. So, um, yeah, that that evolution has uh, been very noticeable for me. Uh, what other kind of differences have you seen over the years with each league that you cover? Like, how have you seen them um, grown other than just financially and in different cities? 
Yeah, the AHL is uh, is interesting because it's sort of the crossroads of the hockey world in a lot of ways. Uh, all the European talent tends to flow in to the AHL at some point. Obviously, college and junior players flow into it, uh, and then it's really the last stop, um, as you know, before the NHL. So, um, in some ways, the AHL becomes the uh, experimental um, league. Um, in a lot of ways, both in terms of rules and, and just uh, different initiatives that the NHL wants to try out first there before they uh, bring it to the NHL level. So the biggest thing I've noticed is the amount of investment that, that teams put into player development. Uh, I had a talk with Sheldon Keefe of the Toronto Marlies at the time, uh, probably about a year or two ago, and you know, he, was re- you know, he was recalling when he started – um, it was almost like when you were sent down, it was like the NHL club put you on a shelf and uh, unless they needed you at some point, you stayed on the shelf. And now uh, it's much more hands-on. Uh, they invest a lot more into facilities and coaching and uh, development and, and skills and um, the coaching staffs have expanded. I mean, not that long ago, a lot of teams didn't have a dedicated goalie coach for the American League club and now everybody does. So uh, it's just been a lot more of a, emphasis i think especially in the in the salary cap era that's um, player development is um, no longer something that's nice to have it's a must-have for nhl clubs even right up to including uh typically big spending clubs like the rangers or or, or the leafs or teams like that so um it's been a, a real interesting shift um and i think with that has come a lot more um uh money in just in terms of Owners that uh, have kicked the tires in the league. I mean, when you look at Palm Springs now, and they had the like Wiki brothers there, um, who, one of them was working in the NFL up to a few years ago, and now they're uh, helping to uh, orchestrate everything in Palm Springs. It just sort of goes to show that um, this isn't uh, the mom and pop league that it once was. So, uh, um, you know, $250 million building going up in Palm Springs in a year or two. Um, the new team coming, like I said, to Vegas, uh, you know, that's going to be an $84 million building. Um, you know, you just didn't used to see this. It was uh, much more, uh, I think of a, I would say haphazard league in the sense that uh, they didn't have a lot of options. So uh, they ended up kind of putting teams wherever they could uh, find an uh, empty, uh, you know, rank. And now it's, uh, right. now they create opportunities. I think that's a real, real significant difference for the league. I was kind of disappointed to see them pull that to see San Antonio get moved. Do you think that they would ever have them operate as a standalone team? You know, that was the league. That was not the league's uh, uh, desire. Um, That was San Antonio Spurs entertainment that uh, decided they wanted to kind of simplify their uh, business portfolio. Um, And uh, when the Vegas Golden Knights uh, were in the market for an AHL club, uh, they didn't have a whole lot of options, so they were definitely willing to pay top dollar for that, and uh, they did. Um, the league is not happy to be out of San Antonio. It certainly complicates things for the Texas Stars now in terms of scheduling and travel. And for years, I mean, San Antonio was a, a really well-supported club, uh, considering that they generally had pretty bad uh, teams on the ice. Uh, this year, they were 12th in attendance. Uh, you know, so there, there was a lot to like about that. It was a uh, NBA caliber facility. So uh, everything that comes with that, uh, um, you know, 
the only reason San Antonio doesn't have a team right now is because San Antonio Spurs management decided um, that they didn't want the club anymore. They wanted to, to simplify. Otherwise, uh, you know, in terms of fan support, in terms of what the, that market offered to the American Hockey League, um, it was a success really in every way. So uh, it's a real shame to see it go. Uh, I've learned to never rule out anything in terms of a possibility of a return. I mean, certainly I think if the NHL ever went to Houston, San Antonio would be a natural fit as an affiliate. But, uh, you know, that's a lot of moving pieces that would still have to happen. But uh, uh, for right now, I really just feel bad for that that market and that fan base because um, they really deserved a much better fate. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, if uh, can you kind of talk about the legacy that David Andrews is leaving behind and how Scott Housen can continue to keep that legacy going while creating his own legacy? Let's just start with Dave Andrews. I mean, I quite frankly believe the AHL, at least as we know it, would not exist today without him. Uh, he came in in 1994. The league was really on shaky ground uh, financially and also in terms of affiliations. Uh, the International Hockey League at the time, uh, was uh, really on the upswing. They were moving into big markets, big buildings. Uh, there was a lot of money behind that league. And uh, the AHL was falling behind pretty fast. Andrews had to come in there, stop the bleeding first, uh, solidify what the league uh, could salvage, and then really start to uh, fairly methodically uh, rebuild the league. And um, you know, when he took over 16 teams, now it's going to be 32 uh, in 2021, when Palm Springs comes in, uh, every team has a full affiliation on a one-to-one uh, basis. And uh, it, I think the biggest thing is he's always been good at putting out fires. And it's um, not just on the hockey side. Man. He, obviously, he has to deal with NHL and AHL clubs and their ownerships. But he also deal with uh, local governments, state governments, uh, zoning officials, uh, all sorts of things that maybe – uh, fans wouldn't necessarily uh, give much thought to, but uh, he's always been good at uh, uh, finding solutions, uh, being very diplomatic. So um, he leaves a big legacy uh, for the league, big big shoes to fill for sure. Uh, Scott Halson is um, in some ways a similar um, path uh, that Andrews took. They both worked in the Edmonton uh, system, running the AHL club, um, and, the difference there, Halston also worked with Columbus for a number of years. I think it was seven years as a GM. Uh, so he has that. He has a little bit of a different background in that sense. But uh, it, in a lot of ways now, and the, obviously the uh, pandemic changes some things, but uh, in a lot of ways, um, what Halston has to do right now is just kind of come in and be a steward of the league. He doesn't necessarily need to come in and shake a whole lot up. Um, if he can kind of just, uh, maintain that stability, I think um, – he'll be successful. And I think uh, th- there was a move that was made uh, with a lot of support from Dave Andrews. So I think, uh, you know, uh, he, he understands what that job entails and, and uh, the fact that he feels that Halston is a, is a good fit and a good replacement. Uh, I think bodes well for the American league. So we're going to kind of switch gears to the monsters now. Uh, five years ago, the monsters became the affiliate of the jackets um, in your mind. Was this a smart move? for not just the jackets, but the league in general. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was uh, that, that whole year was a, a really big shift. Uh, <laughs> you really saw that push toward geographically friendly yeah. affiliations and it made perfect sense. You had uh, Columbus and Cleveland sitting two hours apart. Uh, um, 
Cleveland needed a more natural fit. Uh, a lot of ways the Colorado Avalanche uh, weren't uh, quite delivering um, winning product uh, on a year in and year out basis. So uh, Columbus uh, was a natural fit and they went in there that first year together. They win the Calder cup, 20,000 people in the building. Uh, kind yeah. of a, a, you couldn't write it up any better than that. Uh, and really ever since then, I mean, the team has had its ups and downs on the ice, but uh uh, it's a real solid foundation. I think from a Columbus perspective, um, all they have to do is worry about uh, putting players in there. And uh, obviously the, the Cavaliers management can handle uh, the marketing and the business side of everything. And then, uh, you know, vice versa from, uh, from a Cleveland standpoint, uh, you get that natural tie in uh, with, uh, with an in-state affiliate. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense. I think the, the other thing that helped them too uh, is, in a lot of ways, uh, it's interesting how uh, they're a little bit geographically isolated in the sense that they're not really east, they're not really west. Uh, so um, the way their schedules arranged now, they, they, they still play some of the western clubs, but uh, um, they're based now in the Eastern Conference. So I think uh, that helps a bigger market like Cleveland when you can uh, still bring in teams like Chicago, Milwaukee, Grand Rapids, uh, a little bit bigger markets that I think have a little bit more um, – resonation with the fans uh, as opposed to maybe a Utica or uh, you know you know a Binghamton uh, you know smaller markets that don't have the same uh, recognition uh, for a big city uh, but uh, Cleveland has been it's really been interesting to see that market's evolution uh, you go back to the Barons and they struggled uh, big time with attendance and support and uh, when the monsters came in they really uh, they really overhauled a lot of things on the business end of things and it took a while to to find their speed, uh, find their stride, but uh, I think getting that Columbus affiliation in there was a massive turning point for that whole operation. And really, it's one of the best affiliations in the league now, uh, certainly from a fan support standpoint, and also just uh, in terms of what it can do for both sides. Yeah, it is nice to have uh, multiple teams within six hours of Cleveland. So if I want to go on the road and cover the team, it's uh, it's not a bad drive. Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, uh, they're not necessarily c- close to anybody like yeah, like uh, in some of the New England teams where it's uh, maybe half an hour, an hour apart, but they're also not far from a lot of teams as well. So kind of the best of both worlds uh, for Cleveland. Yeah, speaking to the Monsters, so what were your thoughts kind of on the Monsters this season? And uh, and this is kind of a couple parts of this question, but uh, how did you feel about Mike Eves as a as the coach or to be hired as the coach and did you kind of feel that most of the struggles from the monsters came from a re, uh, the revolving door they had last year? I mean, I almost fell out of the chair because <laughs> it had been 26 years since he had been in the league, and uh, you just don't see that. I mean, a coach uh, generally doesn't take that kind of career path where uh, he had left Hershey in 1993, went off to the NHL for a while spent some time in Europe then obviously had a long career in Wisconsin and was coaching a division three hockey team in, in Minnesota. So uh, in a lot of ways, it looked like he was kind of winding his career down um, at age 63. And he gets that phone call from, uh, from Yarmo. Uh, he, I remember asking him uh, to recall the story. Uh, it was a Friday afternoon. He got the phone call from Yarmo and uh, I think he almost fell over too. Just they didn't expect that. And uh, they had gone way back to their time uh, with Helsinki back in the nineties. And uh, um, it, 
it was an interesting pick for sure. And he admitted that it was uh, definitely a difficult uh, adjustment, um, leaving leaving uh, a pretty comfortable situation, obviously. Uh, Division three, where uh, you know, hockey is not the number one uh, priority for those players. And you go in the American League, you're one step away from the NHL. And it's changed so much, obviously, as well in the uh, past 26 years. So uh, he had a steep learning curve, I thought, uh, all things considered, uh, he honed in there pretty well. Monsters uh, certainly had their issues at different points. Uh, and it was a very rough uh, kind of skid at the end uh, that really uh, kind of bounced them out of the playoff race for good. But uh, there were some bright spots. I mean, it was uh, it was a club that I felt had a little bit of everything, but not enough of any one thing. Um, in net, I think they were pretty solid, but uh, – um, yeah, there was definitely some issues in terms of just, uh, you know, having that depth and that's, that's the key in this league. If you don't have that depth, it's really hard, uh, night in and night out, especially as the recalls and the injuries pile up, uh, to really make a go of it. And, but, uh, you know, you look at the club, they were what 11th on the PK. So that, that both, that tends to build yeah. well for a club being well coached and, and playing hard on a nightly basis. But, uh, you know, it's the, those other things, obviously, where uh, trying to uh, you know, put the puck in that on a regular basis was definitely a challenge for that club. So uh, it was a little bit of a mixed bag, I thought, for uh, Cleveland. Uh, it's kind of been that case for the last couple of years. Obviously, 2018-19, they had a playoff year. But uh, uh, that whole 2015-16 Cup team uh, – um, really cleared out a lot of the talent in the uh, Columbus system. And it's, it's taken a few years to start to restock uh, the farm system. Yeah, definitely. It was something I was worried about at the start of the season when the seasons before, when they had Madden, the opening night, they would have a ton of guys sitting on press row who were healthy scratched. And I think on opening night this year, there was maybe like four who were healthy scratched and two who were injured. And I was curious to see how that was going to work out all season if injuries happened, and then they did. And we saw GM Clark just trying to find guys to come play and bring guys up from the ECHL. And, you know, that that's the kind of balance that's tough when you're um, in the AHL, I think, too, is when you think you have a strong team and you don't, you're a new, newer GM and then you have a new coach, kind of want to work with your own parts, and then that happens. So. Maybe we'll see something yeah, different. They next had season. a tough time. I mean, <laughs> I, I really thought when Gerby went up to Columbus, that, that took a lot of the wind out of their sails. Uh, in a lot of ways, he's the motor on that team. Um, and obviously, uh, Zach uh, Dalpe, uh, I mean, the way he went when, when he's on his game, uh, for my money, he's as dangerous as any scorer in this league. But uh, he was what limited to what maybe 20 games this year. So, um, you know, he wasn't just able to, to kind of put the team on his back uh, like he like he's capable of at times. So um, they didn't have a whole lot of uh, margin for error in terms of depth. And then uh, once those injuries and those recalls hit, uh, that's kind of the end of the uh, end of the story for Cleveland. So um, I think it was more just a lack of depth than, than any sort of uh, you know, coaching issue or, or, or work ethic issue or anything of that nature. Uh, where do you see the monsters in the next few years? Because as we know, the the prospects are kind of coming in, but also a lot of these guys are RFAs and UFAs this summer. A little, they they need a little bit of everything. I think that's that's where it's hard, and uh, you're seeing those pieces start to fill in. But uh, um, it's uh, 
Columbus uh, in the last few years was a little bit more of a win now mode. So um, that can make, that can certainly complicate uh, any club's uh, yeah, uh, pipeline in terms of talent, talent. But uh, I think they're getting there in, in Cleveland slash Columbus, but I do think uh, it's going to take a little while. Um, you know, what's it to really start to replenish that pipeline? I mean, last year, what they only had three picks in the draft. Uh, right. That makes it really difficult to to uh, really stock up. I mean, uh, I think Liam Foodie, there's some definite potential there. Um, uh, that 2018 draft looks a little bit better now. Uh, I was really impressed with uh, goaltending. I thought Vaney was uh, he was impressive. I mean, uh, there were times where it sometimes felt he was a little bit on his own, but uh, there was a lot of potential there. And I think uh, you know, I think. Next year, you could really see him break out in Cleveland if he uh, ends up back there uh, uh, for another year. And um, so I, I just think it's a matter of, uh, you know, they, they've had what one first round pick in what the last four years. Um, and that's fruity. So it just uh, it makes it tough to really uh, stock up your farm club and, and develop those guys slowly and, and uh, methodically. So. Um, if you look at some of the top AHL clubs out there, they, they tend to have at least two, three, four first rounders uh, playing in their lineup. I mean, look at Grand Rapids. They had back-to-back uh, six overall picks in the last two years with Sedina and Cider. Uh, right. So um, that, that's kind of what you're up against if you're if you're Cle- Cleveland. Uh, they had to be a little bit more of a uh, team by committee and, and guys, everyone chipping a little bit. But, but that's a tough way to go in this league because – uh, especially once the second half rolls around. We saw that with this club that uh, um, at some point you need somebody that can just uh, take over the game and not have to rely on everybody grinding out win after win because uh, the schedule and, and the nature of this league just don't really allow for that. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Hello, I'm Nilay Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. So kind of shifting to the COVID-19 uh, topic. Uh, so kind of what was going through your mind on March 11th when the Oklahoma Thunder and Utah Jazz NBA game was canceled due to the coronavirus? And did you think it was kind of a matter of time before the AHL season would shut down as well? 
you get the news that the uh, NBA, 20,000 people in the building, that shut down. And, and the way they shut it down, I mean, uh, within the span of maybe an hour and a half, they went from planning, planning to play a game to, well, the whole season is uh, on, on hold. So uh, once that happened, I, I knew that the AHL uh, was going to be uh, shortly behind. Uh, they share at least a couple of buildings uh, with the NBA. So uh, and obviously, uh, some clubs also share buildings with the NHL uh, team. So once you start to see that, then uh, the wheels definitely start turning. And I started, I remember that night, my phone was just you know, lighting up nonstop, uh, you know, coaches and GMs asking, you know, swapping information and have you heard anything? Uh, so you could definitely get the sense that the panic, uh, button had been pushed, uh, you know, around the hockey world and specifically the AHL and that, uh, everyone kind of knew what was coming down next. And, uh, it's interesting because I remember, uh, I think it was maybe a week or so before all that happened. Uh, and this, obviously the, the, the coronavirus had been lingering in the background a little bit as a news story, but, um, I didn't get the sense that anybody in the hockey world was all that alarmed and, and, they didn't really seem to think that it would amount to a whole lot over here. And, and that evolution within the span of a week, first there was um, all the media restrictions that came in. Um, and then obviously the whole uh, season being suspended uh, that all happened within the span of maybe seven or eight days. So it was, it was pretty, pretty uh, striking how quickly that changed and, and uh, how uh, things really did a 180 because uh, um, I didn't get any sense across certainly at least the American league that there was a whole lot of concern. Uh, the HL in general tends to sort of be a little bit under the radar. So um, uh, the world kind of spins around and the HL just sort of minds its own business. But uh, even this situation uh, eventually ended up on their doorstep. Yeah. I uh, talked to coach and Trey fix Wolanski about it. And it, it's funny. They said, well, everyone else was kind of, stressing out about it that night they were all thinking about how they had just lost an overtime to charlotte and it didn't even hit them till the next day when they were waiting to fly home from charlotte so it's kind of interesting to hear um the other side where people were definitely stressing about it in the moment it went from like a um, situation where I, i'm not entirely sure some of the coaches and players were even aware of the coronavirus before that day i mean a lot of them tend to be kind of be in their own <laughs> bubble and uh uh, not <laughs> be all that uh, up on the latest news, and uh, you know, n those were some of the people I think that were most uh, taken aback. That you know, all this is like, wait, what's this thing that everyone's talking about all of a sudden? So, um, I think coaching, especially, it's such a twenty-four-seven type of job that these guys tend to just sort of uh, bury themselves in their work, and uh, you know. Uh, it's no knock on them. It's just uh, the nature of the job. It's, uh, you know, barely get a day off. And, uh, so, uh, but I, I can see why they were, why they were a little stunned because, uh, if you weren't aware and all of a sudden now people are talking about shutting down the league, uh, you, you would be wondering right. what, what the heck is going on. Um, how do you think this will affect, uh, teams financially? And do you think it will be difficult for some smaller market teams like maybe Utica to make a comeback when next season finally starts again? Great question. I mean, because it, you, know, you look at the league, and but you also look at the bigger picture. You look at, uh, I think, 40-something million people now between the U.S. and Canada are unemployed. Um, and how many more people beyond that are at least concerned about their uh, job security? And 
also alongside with that is how many businesses uh, because of uh, the various shutdowns now are, if not going to go under, at least beyond financially shaky footing. So a lot of those places are your sponsors or, you know, they're the people that buy an ad on the uh, boards or an ad on the ice or in the program. Now all of a sudden they, if they're trying to survive, they may not necessarily have that money. So um, you've been hit kind of both at the fan level and the sponsor level. So, uh, and, and this is a, a league uh, that generally is run uh, uh, their fan bases, kids and families and, and mom and dad bringing the kids to the game. And uh, mom and dad are, are feeling a little bit uncertain about their jobs uh, security. Um, all of a sudden there's not money in, in, in the bank for hockey tickets. Uh, and so, um, it's not a league that can rely on a lot of corporate money like the NHL can or TV money. Uh, you know, they live or die by uh, uh, ticket sales and uh, and sponsorships. So if you don't have that, or at least you have that uncertainty, uh, it's definitely a challenge. Um, I think the I think there's there's a lot of concern. I can tell you that. Uh, I think some of that concern is almost on hold though because. Uh, just talking to different, uh, you know, business people across the league, uh, they're not really sure what they're working with yet. So they're, they know they should be concerned, but they're just not sure what they should be concerned about. If that makes sense. Uh, they're right. like, uh, well, we foresee problems, but we have no idea what those actual problems will be other than that. They could be pretty significant. So, um, I think there's a lot of concern. Uh, you look at some of the markets, uh, this is a tough business in the best of times and teams compete with uh, obviously with other sports. Uh, they compete with uh, Netflix. They compete with uh, people that just want to stay home and put their feet up and uh, check their phones and um, you know, things like that. And it can be difficult. It's not like minor league baseball where you're selling, uh, you know, a night out at the park or, uh, you know, just kind of come out and uh, enjoy the weather that, you know, a lot of times this is uh, you're asking fans to come down on a Wednesday night uh, in the middle of winter and, uh, They've just worked all day. The kids have school tomorrow. Uh, the kids are busy. Uh, so it's, it's a tough business when everything's going right, uh, let alone when you have all this uh, falling you on top of it. So um, I think, yes, there is absolutely concern. Uh, will it hurt clubs? Will it uh, damage some clubs to the point where they're no longer able to continue? Uh, I'm not sure. I think uh, what it will come down to is how much support the NHL parent club gives them. Uh, 19 out of the 31 clubs now are owned by their NHL team. I think that gives them a little bit of uh, cushion. But the challenge there is uh, those other 12 teams are some of your strongest clubs. Uh, it's your Cle- Cleveland's, your Hershey's, Providence, uh, you know, clubs like that, really strong uh, clubs that are independently owned. Uh, and uh, they have to kind of make their own way uh, financially. So um, that's where it gets challenging because uh, the, your independently owned clubs – in some ways are going to be more vulnerable, but they're also your best markets in a lot, a lot of ways. So um, uh, Scott Halston certainly has his work cut off from coming in here, um, <laughs> which is why I think Dave Andrews is going to be a little bit more involved um, than he originally planned to be just helping with that transition as, as they all try to find their way through, through it all. I wanted to get your thoughts on how you think the, what the, from the NHL perspective of things, how do you think, you know, the, the the cancellation basically and going straight into basically a playoffs how you think that would affect the league and the teams having this two-month you know layoff and just kind of suddenly picking it up again the thing with this is there's no precedent there's nothing you can really go on 
and say, all right, well, last time this happened, uh, X, Y, yeah. you know, uh, such and such happened, right? There's not, there's no history for this. I mean, the only time uh, we've had a pandemic of this nature was a hundred years ago. Obviously the right. world and the hockey world were certainly much different. Uh, and even lockouts are different because players generally are playing somewhere else. Maybe they're down in the American league or they're over in Europe or, yeah. or they're doing something. And it, and it, there's a more or less a certain uh, uh, beginning and end point to it. Uh, here it's more, well, we hope to be playing some point this summer, but we're not totally sure. And you know, a lot of players have said that it's just a challenge because uh, you're trying to plan your, your training and uh, your conditioning and your workouts and everything that, that goes with that. And uh, they like to time them so that uh, they're kind of peaking right as, uh, as training camp and season opens. And, uh, but they don't know without that target date, they don't know when uh, really how to, how to plan that training. So they're kind of, um, kind of flying without any radar and the, obviously the other issues, most of them haven't had access to training facilities or, or, or ice or anything of that nature. So um, they're kind of having to improvise on their own. I mean, it's a lot like I was joking with somebody. It's uh, like that, the Rocky movie where he goes over to Russia and he's, uh, you know, pulling, you know, you know, logs across the fields. And yes, they're kind of like guys that have to <laughs> find their own way. So it's, it's definitely, uh, forcing them to be creative. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know how it's going to unfold, especially then you factor in a 24 team uh, format. That's completely different from anything we're used to. So um, I think if they can pull it off, that will be a miracle in and of itself. Just when you think of all the challenges uh, that come with uh, trying to keep everybody safe, uh, you know, I'm really kind of intrigued to see how they can, uh, how they can really go through the logistics of that, because I don't think it will be easy. So if they're able to pull this whole thing off and have playoffs, do you think that the AHL and NHL will be able to start at the same time then for the 2020, 2021 season? Uh, depending on how late this uh, NHL situation goes. I mean, if you figure if they're talking like an August start of some sort uh that probably would take you into early october uh then you have to do the draft and you have everything that goes with that and you have to have a little bit of a break um i would say if i was an ahl fan uh if you told me that you'll get a start in january um a shortened schedule maybe 40 something games uh and probably a little bit of an altered playoff format i think that would be a, a something to aim for and something that you could definitely uh, I think be pretty happy with, uh, I think an October start, uh, certainly the league is still planning for it, uh, um, just because they have to, but I, I don't get the sense there's a whole lot of enthusiasm for it. Uh, I think the other variable, the wild card in all this is just going to be, uh, if there's a resurgence in the, uh, in the virus, uh, number of cases. And if that all happens, then I think everything goes out the window at that point. And, uh, we go through all this again and maybe then some. So, um, but I think if, if, if you get some favorable, uh, help from the, uh, from mother nature and, um, uh, she kind of, uh, takes a break on all of us uh, and we can, uh, get back, uh, you know, to a little bit more of a predictable, uh, format then I think sort of a December slash January, uh, uh, break would probably, 
or, or start time would probably be uh, ideal for the HL. And to be quite honest, I think some clubs would be okay with that uh, if they didn't have to compete with uh, the NFL and college football uh, throughout the fall. Uh, those are some of the worst attendance uh, uh, months for them. So uh, in a lot of ways, um, that would you know, the damage would be a lot less significant than if it was the other way around. So uh, I think I think that's sort of, you know, just reading between the lines with different people. That's sort of where they're, they're trying to hit, uh, you know, when all said and done. So do you think then with the thought of money issues for these teams – do you think it would be ideal for them to play more games against the same opponents? I know they're already playing a lot of games against the same people. Like, you know, seeing the same teams eight times is really tough, <laughs> like against Toronto or Rochester. When you think about it, you're in a like, typical season. You're, you know, some teams see uh, 12 times a year. I think San Antonio and Texas at one point got up to 14 times in a season. Oh, yeah, goodness. which, uh, you know, if, if both teams are good and, and the rivalry is intense, uh, you can make it work. But it, a lot more often it feels like you know, one club just kind of uh, uh, beats up on the other club and uh, really sort of also throws the playoff uh, and the standings uh, kind of uh, it really distorts them. And you don't get a great sense of really who is good and who had a favorable schedule. So, um, yeah, it would certainly help in terms of uh, financial um uh, you know, constraints. Uh, the other issue is travel, especially in the Western Conference, uh, depending on where air travel is at, uh, you know, come next winter, uh, that could be another challenge. Uh, uh, for the most part, most of the Western teams, uh, Cleveland, Cleveland included, uh, have to fly at some point. Uh, and, um, you know, and they do it by commercial uh, air. So, uh, both in terms of whether or not it's safe, and then the, the second aspect of that is how how available and how expensive will it be. I mean, uh, air travel is down, I think, 96% in the last few months. Um, the airlines have taken a financial hit, uh, and, uh, you know, it's going to eventually the, the cost gets passed on to the uh, consumer. And uh, if you're trying to fly a hockey team of uh, 25, 30 people in your travel party, uh, you know, equipment, everything else, uh, that can get really expensive. So uh, I think there's a lot of challenges there. Uh, so I do think uh, you probably won't be seeing any any of the California clubs or anything like that uh, uh, coming through Cle Cleveland next season. But uh, um, I think, yeah, it will be a very heavily divisional uh, format, maybe even more so than usual. Could you um, picture other NHL teams allowing their farm team to like use their plane every once in a while? I know with playoffs, in the Calder Cup uh, Western Conference, they let the Jackets let the Monsters use their plane to get to Ontario. Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah, at times you can do that. Usually, yeah, playoffs are the time you see it. Uh, um, the parent team generally is out of the playoff at that point. Uh, uh, so especially once once you get to the third round or the finals, um, the travel distances become a lot more significant, and uh, they usually try to help their, their players out that way. But the problem is – uh, during the regular season, uh, that that plane is usually in you know business for the NHL clubs. So, uh, it, and they're not cheap. I, I know that uh, the prices right. are pretty scary to fly a team <laughs> on a charter. So, uh, I think they'll do that if they can. But for the most part, uh, both cost and logistics would make that very difficult. 
Well, Patrick, this was awesome to kind of talk with you about everything, you know, regarding hockey, the AHL, everything going on. Um, could you uh, kind of just plug, you know, all the different places that people could find you on the web and all the different parts of uh, hockey community that people could find you at? A uh, regular daily basis, I guess you'd say, uh, at P. Williams NHL. It's all one word on Twitter. Uh, that's where I put all my work, uh, links. Uh, I have a weekly column uh, for NHL.com that uh, touches on all things American League. Uh, I have the same thing at EP Ringside uh, that really goes into depth uh, on kind of even uh, a little bit more of a nerdier basis. I think it's more for the diehard AHL fan. And then uh, I have a podcast. I, uh, I do it with uh, Dave Foote of the uh, Belleville Senators radio team. Uh, it's called Around the A, and we're on all the major platforms. We do it uh, every week. Uh, and, uh, it's a lot of fun. We really try to, uh, one thing we noticed is in a lot of ways, this league feels like two, three, four leagues all within one, you know, uh, <laughs> so your, your, your fan in Providence doesn't really, yeah. uh, yeah. know much about what's going on in, in Cle- Cleveland and, uh, the, the person in San Diego doesn't know. Uh, so we kind of try to like bring it all together and, and, uh, put it all under one roof and uh, it's been a lot of fun it's our first season uh, we've had pretty good listenership so far and uh we're still going actually uh we had to take a break uh while everything played out uh but the last uh, month or so we've been back and uh it's been a lot of fun it's a great way to get guests now because everyone's kind of just sitting around <laughs> they're more than willing than ever to talk <laughs> hockey so it's been a lot of fun to uh catch up with them. That's right. Yeah, it was definitely awesome to speak with you and get the AHL perspective because, like you said, it is like four different leagues. There's so much hockey all over the world, and it's great to get that kind of uh, that other side of it. So, you know, a lot of people still sort of think minor league hockey, they think slap shot, all that. I mean, this is not, it's one step below the NHL. Um, it's very professional. Everything's, um, I can't think of really any, any uh, real disaster teams yeah. in this league where things are unprofessional. So, um, it's a uh, high caliber of hockey. I mean, you have first round picks, uh, everywhere, 87, I think 87 or 88%, um, uh, of, uh, NHL players come through the American league at one point and, uh, pretty much all your goalies do for sure. So, uh, it's a high caliber league and, uh, you know, uh, any given night, uh, you know, you'll see, um, some real future NHL talent, uh, you know, at your local rink. Do you watch a lot of games during the season? Like, even though I cover the monsters, I'm watching West Coast teams too, just in just in case they make it to the Calder Cup. And I go like insane though, because it's just so much hockey. Especially now, now that AHL TV is a lot better than AHL Live, uh, it's a lot less painful than that. Right. And then I, uh, I also hit the road a lot. Uh, I try to hit as many teams in the season as I can, and um, I find that I have to because the divisional play is so heavy that uh, uh, if I want to see, uh, you know see more than the same four or five teams I have to really uh, get out there. So I do. And uh, um, so I'm on the road a lot anyway, but uh, it's definitely a lot nicer, you know, on those uh, times you want to catch up on a few teams and get some video on them to be able to actually see the players and see the numbers and (laughs) be able to identify what you're watching. So yeah, it's a lot better that way. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's all we had. That was, yeah, like I said, this was awesome. So thanks so much for taking some time. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Our theme music is the song Green Eyes by Angela Pearlie and Howlin' Moons off of their album Homemade Vision. 
Angela's newest album is called 430, and you should definitely go check it out. Check her out at AngelaPerly.com, and you should also check out Angela Pearly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for videos and live stream concerts from her home during the stay-at-home period. Rate us and leave us a review on iTunes, and as always, we welcome your comments and questions. You can tweet at us at CBJCannon and comment on JacketsCannon.com. From all of us at the Cannon, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Yeah.